So 2 Samuel 19, we're going to read verses 41 through 43. Let me be honest with you. I know we've been covering a lot of ground lately, right? We've been covering two chapters a week for at least two or three weeks now. Um, And I initially wanted to cover all of chapter 20, but I was writing this as an introduction and I thought, ooh, okay, <laughs> um, all right. And the Lord, this one's really for me. I'm going to be honest with you. Uh, sometimes you're writing and you're struggling with something or there's just an area over your life that you've seen the Lord uh, really work on and continue to work on. And this is one of those areas. And so um, forgive me, but I think this is going to be helpful for you as well as we look at Second Samuel 19, verses 41 through 43 and the sermon entitled Harsh Words. Um, here's what happens. Uh, Just then, all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why have our brethren, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king, his household, and all David's men across with them uh, across the Jordan? So all the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, Because the king is a close relative of ours. Why then are you angry over this matter? Have we ever eaten at the king's expense? Or has he given us any gift? And then the men of Israel answered the men of Judah and said, We have ten shares in the king. Therefore, we also have more right to David than you. Why then do you despise us? Were we not the first to advise bringing back our king? Yet the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures. Let's go to the Lord and thank him for his Word, thank you, Father, for your grace upon grace that you pour out upon your people. Thank you for the ancient words of Christ proclaimed already through the reading, praying, and singing and preaching of the scriptures. We thank you for how in all these ways you continually present Christ to our hearts and minds, conforming us more and more into his image. Father, I pray for conviction this morning. Pray for correction and exhortation, that we all together might be built up into our head, the Lord Jesus Christ, and that we might all bear his image more faithfully in this world. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Has anybody ever heard of the pig war? You ever heard of this? It's a real thing. I'm not talking about Brock and his boar in his land right now. Um, although that, that's going to be a pig war coming soon, I feel. Um, but no, there was a, such a thing called a, the pig war. There was a, there's a war called this. It was an argument over a slaughtered swine. It took place between the United States and Great Britain. The controversy began in 1859 in San Juan Island, a chunk of land between the mainland United States and our neighbors to the north in Vancouver, out on the west coast. At the time, uh, American and British settlements were taking up the same piece of land. And at the moment of the conflict, it was not decided who actually owned the land yet. The first and only shots of the pig war actually came on June 15th, 1859, when an American farmer named Lyman Cutler gunned down, not a person, but a pig. Hence the name, the Pig War. The problem was, it was a British-owned pig. The black boar was rooting around in his potato garden. So he took out his gun and shot it. (laughs) The problem was, the British owner of that pig wanted compensation for the lost animal. And of course, an argument ensued. The argument saw 
increasing escalation, not just between the man who shot the pig and its owner, but between the Americans and British more broadly. Eventually, it turned into an armed conflict. Captain George Pickett was dispatched to oversee a militia in order to take control of the island. He upped the ante by declaring the whole island is U.S. property. The British responded by upping the ante and surrounding the island with a heavily armed fleet of naval vessels. An absurd standoff ensued. The situation remained on a knife's edge for several agonizing weeks. The two nations finally negotiated a deal allowing for joint military occupation of the San Juan Island in October of 1859. Again, at the end of the day, the pig was the only one to perish. But this is just one in a long list of ridiculous wars. This actually comes from an article on the History Channel's website that records numerous really absurd wars. They all start with little squabbles, and in the conversation between two different parties, fierce words will prevail, and war often ensues. Friends, that's really what we have here today in our passage. Did you know that? In fact, what I'd like to tell you is this is a real-life illustration of Proverbs 15.1. And I know I failed to get you a reading list this week, but if you want one post-sermon, Proverbs 15.1 is going to be one to memorize. This is a real-life illustration of Proverbs 15.1. And I know you're wondering, what does it say? Proverbs 15.1, here's what it says. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The men of Israel came to King David and they asked him a question. It's a rather simple, straightforward question. Why have our brothers come to you in order to steal you away from us? David does not answer, but Judah does. Judah responds, because the king is our close relative. Why then are you so angry over this matter? We've not benefited. He's our close relative. We've come to him and taken him over, taken him back, by the way, into the promised land. And in the end, we read that Judah's words were more fierce than the words of the men of Israel. In fact, this whole passage is like an arm wrestling competition, right? You got two men engaged, Israel and Judah, then Israel speaks some harsh words, and it's Judah fires back with harsh words, and Israel comes back, and then bam, Judah's words are more fierce than Israel. In fact, if you're a parent, every parent knows the scenario, don't we? think every human being does, but certainly if you've got more than one kiddo, (laughs) you know the situation. Johnny comes up and says, hey dad, why'd you take Timmy to the store? I was outside, why didn't you invite me? Dad doesn't get a chance to respond because Timmy jumps out and says, well I helped him, that's why I got to go to the store, and he took me. Johnny responds, I wasn't talking to you Timmy, and then Timmy throws hands, right? That's How it goes, someone's words end up being fiercer than the other, and one triumphs and the other is subdued. It's repeated a thousand times over and again in every household, besides ours, of course. Doesn't happen here in the households of First Baptist Church of Greg Abel's, I'm sure. See, this is one of those conversations that if you're an innocent bystander standing outside of this dialogue, you would think to yourself, this is not going to end well. And it doesn't. Instead of a soft answer that turned away the wrath of Israel, harsh words escalate the situation. 
And these verses communicate the escalation of malice and contempt. In fact, everything that's going to follow in chapter 20 flows straight from this incident. If you don't know what's coming up in chapter 20, there's bloodshed, there's a city that's seized, the head lost, all of it could have been avoided had there been a man who offered a soft answer. Or if you follow along with the rest of Proverbs 15, a wise tongue that commended knowledge, or a gentle tongue that is like the tree of life. But that man is not found in 2 Samuel 19, verses 41 through 43. And so before we take this up and dive into it deeper, it it helps to see the parallels. And there are parallel passages that help us understand this a bit. In fact, we'll see two in the book of Judges. So I want to look at instruction from the parallel scriptures in the book of Judges. We're going to find important parallels there. I want to first turn your attention to a soft answer in Judges chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. If you're familiar with your Bible... You'll be familiar with the Gideon incident, right? Everybody knows the Gideon incident. Gideon's charged by God to go up against the camp of the Midianites. He goes out with many men, only ends up with 300. He breaks some lanterns, shows some light, screams. They all disperse, and the Midianites end up killing each other. Well, then we read in chapter 8 of Judges, after the Lord has gifted them this victory, we read these words, it says... Now the men of Ephraim, and and Ephraim typically always refers to men of Israel. In fact, when the the nations split, you'll see northern kingdom Israel being referred to as Ephraim often. Ephraim said to him, being Gideon, Why have you done this to us by not calling us when you went out to fight with the Midianites? And they reprimanded him sharply. By the way, you'll notice that all of these events take place by the River Jordan. You may ask, how do you come up with these parallels? Well, there's a crossing of the River Jordan in each of these incidents. And that, I believe, just draws our attention to the fact that these are meant to be parallel passages. Those little details clue us in. And so, continuing the text, so he said to them, Gideon said to Ephraim, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the vintage of Abiezar? God has delivered into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb, and Zeb. And what was I able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger toward him subsided when he said that. So there's the first incident. You saw it, right? Judges chapter 8. What do we have? We got Ephraim coming up. He's one who is in sense representative of Israel as a whole. Here Ephraim charges, indicts Gideon and his men for going out to fight without them, excluding him from an event they should have been a part of. Gideon responds with humility and gentleness. A soft answer does indeed turn away wrath. So it ends that their anger toward him subsides. All right, we looked at the good news. Let's look at the bad example now. A harsh word in Judges chapter 12 Verses 1 through 6, another parallel passage here from the book of Judges. This one does not end so well. Take note. Here you have Jephthah. If you aren't familiar with him, as you are maybe Gideon, that's understandable. He's the one who gave the oath that he would offer up the first thing to come out of his house if the Lord gave him victory over his enemies. And that first thing happened to be his daughter, one of the weirdest stories in all of Scripture. And so after the victory... The Lord has once again gave Jephthah victory over his enemies. And we read a similar question. Get this. It says in Judges 12, Then the men of Ephraim gathered together, crossed over towards Zaphon, and said to Jephthah, Why did you cross over to fight against the people of Ammon 
and did not call us to go with you. We will burn your house down on you with fire. Seems needlessly harsh, quite frankly. But And Jephthah said to them, My people and I were in a great struggle with the people of Ammon. And when I called you, you did not deliver me out of their hands. So when I saw that you would not deliver me, I took my life in my hands and crossed over against the people of Ammon. And the Lord delivered them into my hand. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? Talking now over, by the way. Verse 4. Jephthah gathered together all the men of Gilead and fought against Ephraim. And the men of Gilead defeated Ephraim because they said, You Gileadites are fugitives of Ephraim among the Ephraimites and among the Manassites. The Gileadites seized the fords of the Jordan before the Ephraimites arrived. And when any Ephraimite who escaped said, let me cross over, the men of Gilead would say to him, are you an Ephraimite? If he said no, then they would say to him, then say Shibboleth. And he would say Shibboleth, Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it right. Then they would take him and kill him at the fords of the Jordan. There fell at that time 42,000 Ephraimites. I would have died for sure, by the way. Like, not, not a, uh, even if I knew the pronunciation correctly, it would have been over. Tim Page would have just flowed through me, and that would have been done. All right. I would have been with the Lord. So hopefully, it's not difficult to see the parallel in between these two passages, Right? Got Ephraim and Gideon, and then Ephraim and Jephthah. Gideon speaks a soft word to Ephraim, and the end is their anger subsided when he said this. Jephthah instead provokes an even greater conflict, ending with 42,000 Ephraimites slaughtered. So when judges, you've got a positive example, one that might be worth following. You've got a negative example. Probably not advisable to follow that one, right? That brings us to our passage. Remember, by the way, that the critical contextual element of all these passages, including ours, all of these, interestingly enough, they, they follow directly on the heels of the deliverance of the Lord. Did you notice that? So Gideon, the Lord has just delivered Israel. Then the following event is Israel fighting with Israel. Then again, in the Jephthah account, he's just delivered his own people. And then it's followed by Israel devouring Israel. David's just been delivered, hasn't he? From the Absalom coup. And what follows? Israel devouring Israel. It'd be a little bit like this. Like you rescue your family from an armed intruder into your home. And and you just go outside and start reporting it to the police. And then you finally walk back in and one of your sons is strangling the other. That's really the illustration. That's exactly what's transpiring here over and over. This reiteration. But but it's meant to instruct us. Especially as you take them up and see a gentle answer does turn away wrath in Judges chapter 8. And a harsh word stirs up anger in Judges chapter 12. And so we get to David and wonder, what's going to transpire here? And right off the bat, if there's one verse in this account... Oddly enough, one thing we notice is that who's absent? Who's silent? David. David's David's not even here. He's not even saying anything. David is actually seen in walking both of these ways, however. In fact, we can actually have a soft answer from David. And then this example, which I believe in his absence, stirs up Wrath, And so I want to look at these instructions from parallel scriptures for David's life as we lean into his silence in this text. The soft answer, it's not as close as parallel, but if, 
If you remember the end of 1 Samuel 30, if you had the opportunity to read 1 Samuel and you know how that ends, there's this text there that tells us that Ziklag was burned and David's family was actually taken, kidnapped. And David and his house go. Some of the men, however, they're just exhausted and they stay behind at the river. And so David takes the rest of them to go and find that Amalekite camp. And they defeat them. They recover. Nothing is lost. They come back. And there's worthless men in the midst saying, let them take their wives and children and go. They have no share in what we've just taken. Right? So we're the ones that did all the work. These men who didn't come fight with us, they get nothing of what we've just taken from the Amalekites. But look at what David's answer is. David says, oh no. In 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 23, listen to this gentle answer in this instance. But David said, my brethren, you shall not do so with what the Lord has given us who has preserved us and delivered into our hand the troop that came against us. Notice part of David's argument here is, who just delivered us? Who is it we serve? Who is it we belong to? Whose children are we? In verse 24, for who will heed you in this matter? But as is his part is who goes down to the battle, so shall his part be who stays by the supplies. They shall share alike. That's a gentle answer, isn't it? Here in chapter 19, David's silent. I would argue, though I hope I don't have to at this point, that David's silence here is deafening. We see a deafening silence leading to harsh words. I'm going to take this microphone and throw it into a river. If we return to our Johnny, and that was a harsh word to the microphone, I need to apologize. Um... If we return to our Johnny and Timmy illustration, right? David's like the dad who just sits there while the two kids go at it. First with words, then with punches, and they're wrestling around on the ground, and the dad's just kind of sitting there waiting for them to finish up. Where's David? Why is David not speaking? See, this is actually a recurring theme in the life of David, is it not? Haven't we seen this? In 1 Samuel, David's words on multiple occasions, on multiple occasions, actually prevent and stop bloodshed. He keeps the hands of his men from killing Saul continually on multiple occasions. David speaks in order to intervene and to bring about peace. But since 2 Samuel 10, however... David's words have either directly contributed to or his silence has conspired in bloodshed. There's a pattern now by this point. The absence of a wise word from the king is clearly a problem that is at least partly responsible for what follows. And to make matters worse, and it is worse, if you happen to read chapter 19 last week, David's words actually initiated this whole thing. You'll notice these are just David's words repackaged and given straight to the mouth of Judah from Israel. In fact, read with me 2 Samuel 19 verses 11 through 14. If you remember what happens, uh, Absalom's defeated, right? They want to enter in back into Jerusalem. Israel's ready to receive David, but look at what David says. So King David sent Zadok to Abiathar the priest saying... Speak to the elders of Judah, saying, Why are you the last to bring the king back to his house? Since the words of all Israel have come to the king, to his very house? You are my brethren. You are my bone and my flesh. Why then are you the last to bring back the king? And say to Amasa, Are you not my bone and my flesh? God do so to me, and more also, 
if you are not commander of the army before me continually in place of Joab. So he swayed the hearts of all the men of Judah. That sound familiar, by the way? Just as the heart of one man, so that they sent this word to the king, return you and all your servants. So David goes to Judah. He's actually creating division here, saying, you're bone of my bone, you're flesh of my flesh. He knows Israel, all of Israel is ready to take him back, yet he sends a message to the priest and to the ears of the elders to remind them, hey guys, we're close relatives. Who should be first? Who should be the one that that comes to get me? And and it works, but the, the point is, these are actually David's words. It's almost like Israel comes in order to ask, why were we excluded from this? Get this, their exclusion and their offense here, it's real. It's not completely make-believe. It's not just like Timmy bumping into Johnny and Johnny losing his ever-loving mind. The, The offense here is real. Israel was really excluded from the return of the king into the land. But but here's what we might miss. David not only doesn't speak, but put the very words that caused this escalation into the mouth of his people Judah. And then as the escalating dialogue ramps up, he kind of just backs away slowly, slipping into the background, letting the kids go at it. He doesn't intervene, doesn't turn away wrath. He allows for anger to be stirred up. Why? Well, I think the text doesn't necessarily tell us this, but it seems reasonable really to interpret this as self-preservation. In fact, that's what I really believe that this is at this point, is David's attempt at self-preservation. David is now using the methods of men in order to capture the hearts of Judah back to himself. The reason that David's remaining silent here is because it might be a little risky getting in the middle of this one. So, So let me just let them work this out. Then, in chapter 20, when the northern kingdom actually does reject him, when Sheba does end up saying, in chapter 20, verse 1, we have no share in David, nor do we have inheritance in the son of Jesse, every man to his tents, O Israel. Then David acts in order to retake the kingdom. See, David seems to be acting out of self-preservation, attempting in a Saul-like fashion to hold on to the kingdom that was given to him in the first place. Now, he's taking matters into his own hands. Only self-preservation explains why David sits silent as his brothers escalate in words that lead to violence in chapters 19 and 20. And so, okay, that's the text. Let's take that and consider it in regards to us. Isn't that your favorite part? As we look at the Bible, we know that it speaks to us. Directly addressing some fallen condition in ourselves. What's the fallen condition here? Here's the fallen condition. The human tongue, as James says, is a fire. Ain't it though? The human tongue is a fire. I think we we just can kind of hang on to that. It's a world of unrighteousness, James 3.6. This is an illustration of that from the Old Testament. You you take a look at the human tongue. It's capable from moving from 2 Samuel 19 verse 9 where it says, The king saved us from the hand of our enemies. He delivered us from the hand of the Philistines. To not even one chapter later in chapter 20 verse 1 saying, 
We have no share in David, nor do we have inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. Now, we know, of course, the human tongue is simply the verbal expression of the overflow of the human heart. Again, the offense here is real. David knew that Israel wanted to bring him over. They wanted to participate in the ceremonial event when the king is brought back from the east of the river into the promised land. Participating in that had great significance. To to not participate in that is borderline treason here. This is not simply Israel being petty. Nonetheless, the tongue makes audible the true condition of the heart. Full of jealousy and selfish ambition. Is that not the character quality that's demonstrated throughout this exchange? Well, let's be real, friends. We also struggle with jealousy. Self-ambition. Self-preservation. Being silent when we should speak, or speaking when we should be silent. Our tongues are also like sparks in the middle of a dry forest, lighting everything ablaze. We speak to defend ourselves quickly. We speak to offend others when they offend us. How often do we use our words in attempt to vindicate ourselves or to punish those who have wronged us? Our words also lead to war. Now, we may not say something that will lead to national level of conflict, yet think of the damage we even do in our own homes with careless words. Sometimes it's just the malice and contempt of the heart coming out. Sometimes... It's the division that it causes in our families and communities in our church. Sometimes it's, it's actual bloodshed. Our words indeed are weapons and we tend to wield them with incredible and tragic violence. So if our passage warns us about the malice and contempt in our own hearts that are often given vent in our own words, what hope then is there for people such as us. This is the Sunday school answer. Jesus Christ is our hope. Jesus spoke words of peace. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 2, it tells us Jesus actually said, peace, peace to those who are near, referring to the Jews, and peace, peace to those who are far off, referring to everyone else. People from every tongue, tribe, and nation. See, friends, the reality is Our hope is that Jesus proclaims a soft answer. He does. How do we know this? Well, we have his word. Jesus spoke only what he heard from his father. Now, to be fair, he spoke in a world that hates him and his father. So it's not that Jesus' words never offended, because indeed they did. Like light offends darkness by piercing it in a place where people love darkness. His words were not always appreciated, sure, but Jesus spoke truth, and his words were always good. His words were always beautiful. His words were always expressed and communicated, even as an act of love for both God and his people, perfectly, always. But Jesus was also silent, though, wasn't he? Unlike David, Jesus' silence was not for the sake of self-preservation, It was for the sake of self-sacrifice. 
Jesus remained silent, not so he wouldn't enter into the fray of some conflict, getting caught up in it. Jesus' silence was him entering into the fray as lamb being led to the slaughter. He was silent so that he might lay down his life to bring the reconciliation that this picture clearly cries out for. Friends, listen. Our world is full of enmity, violence, and anger. It's everywhere, isn't it? Let me ask you, where's the soft answer? Where is the the wise tongue that commends knowledge, the gentle tongue that is like the tree of life? It only comes from Jesus. Only. Listen, we, we once followed the prince of the power of the air. We were children of wrath. Every single one of you sitting in this room, you, you think you know this, but you've got to hear it again right now. You were once separated from Christ, alienated from God's people. You were in a relationship with God under his wrath with no hope of escaping that coming judgment. And the reality is you weren't even looking for it anyway. Your tongue was like that of an asp. Most of us think in regards to this, we we think, well, you know what? I don't curse anymore. But even in just your manipulation of your words, your little subtle jabs where you know the thing you are saying wounds the other person, you know it hurts them. All of us, all of us have tongues that have started fires. All of us have both praised God with our mouths and cursed our brothers and sisters made in his image. But the good news is that God sent His Son in the fullness of time, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. Friends, that's the gospel we've read, sang, and prayed today. It's the gospel that hopefully we will continue to reverberate as we fellowship and go out to lunch afterwards. Friends, you were once an object of wrath, but now you're the son and daughter of the King Most High, and we all say hallelujah. That's incredible when you think about it. We're co-heirs with Christ who have inherited everything. But now we are to be a people of gentle tongue whose tongue is like a tree of life. Do you understand that? Friends, each and every one of your words matter. Our words matter. Now listen. It's important because this is what happens in our context. Clearly, we're, we're in a predominantly red county when it comes to political views. So we hear the, the left-wing media and people say, well, words are, are violence. And we stand up in response and say, no, words aren't violence. Violence is violence. That's ridiculous. And we begin to live like our words no longer matter. Like they don't incite violence. Like if I were to come up to you and use words to threaten you that you would not respond in violence and have justified reason of saying that, friends, your words matter. That's why, by the way, that Fox News or any sort of right-wing media is not our authority. The Word of God is, right? You understand that. Because what we do is we get so aligned to somebody politically, even when clearly there may be just cause to do so, that we begin to identify ourselves more as Republican conservatives than we do Christians who follow God's Word. Hear me, your words matter. How you defend your political views matter in your words. How you defend your biblical views matter in your words. They all matter. Your words, they either do one of two things. They either communicate life or death. 
They build up or they tear down. Your words are not neutral. Listen, preaching to myself, I said that this one's for me, right? It's hard to control the tongue. But it is like a rudder. It controls the whole ship. We have to be a people that understand that Christ came and spoke the words of his Father. The words of of life to us. And then he was silent that he might take upon himself our sin. He was raised from the dead that we might receive his life. And we have his spirit now abides in us. And now what? Now, you and I, friends, we're, we're called to be peacemakers. Think again of the book of Ephesians. Imagine these people who are supposed to be family, one people, one Lord in Israel. And here they are escalating, fighting back and forth. And pretty soon it will lead to division and violence. There will be death. There will be the chopping off of the head. Putting yourself in the middle of that. Friends, that can no longer be what defines us can no longer be what describes us at any level. Instead, we are to speak the truth in love. Ephesians 4 tells us, Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. So we preach peace, peace to those who are near and those who are far off. And, and, and hear me, I, I know some of us have a certain personality where we just tend to be harsh with our words. I wrote that. That's not okay. (laughs) Hear me. Your personality does not justify you being unkind with your words. You are called to build up, brothers and sisters. That means that your words should actually be kind. Full of grace and tender. You should be full of soft answers. And it starts in here within us. But it doesn't just stay in here. And, And let me just add... It's not just the words you speak, but the words you write. Facebook or whatever the kids are using these days. Fighting for truth doesn't even justify your malice and contempt. It doesn't. We have a responsibility to be conformed to the image of Christ who is gentle. We have the responsibility to bid people to come to the one who has a gentle tongue, the very words of life. We know him. Let me ask you, do you think that it matters at all if you win an argument and prove someone wrong about some theological or political point, but in winning the argument, they never hear the words of life? You don't want to give an account for that. We tell you, human history is littered of, with examples of silly conflicts. It's as old as Cain and Abel. We, friends, are to be a people of peace who promote peace with our words. And the only hope and the only answer is that we look to the true and better peacemaker, the Lord Jesus Christ. That we are 
diligent and constant about seeking his help in this. And the beauty about Jesus who proclaims a soft answer is he's happy, glad to give us all the grace sufficient for each and every moment that we might be a people that respond with soft answers and a gentle tongue. Would you stand with me as we close this morning? Gracious Father, you know better than us how loose our tongues can be. How even under, Lord, the guise of religion, we can tear one another down and feel quite justified in doing so. You know how often our words sow the seeds of discord. Would you convict us? Would you help us to see what we do not see in the way we speak to others? You help us to see that you have clearly called us to be kind and tender-hearted, to forgive one another as we've been forgiven in Jesus Christ, for our words to reflect that reality. Would you help us to be more faithful to this while giving thanks that even when we're unfaithful, you remain faithful you cannot deny yourself. Help your people that we might more faithfully bear your image. Would you please continue to conform us into the image of your Son by the work of your Spirit, we ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen. We come now to the time of our invitation, and I know that primarily we know that this one is geared towards us as professing Christians, um, which uh, will start there. The application's pretty simple, right? We review in our words, are we speaking life or do we speak death? Are we offering a soft answer or a harsh word? And friends, you talk about something you got to be active on, <laughs> that you don't need to let your mind go to sleep on, it's this. <laughs> so I don't know about you, but if I'm not actively pursuing, taking every thought captive, I will lend myself to harsh words, yes as you know, covered in sarcasm, but that's not excusable either. <laughs> Hate to say it. So friends, maybe you're here today and you're like me. You just struggle with words of edification, words that build life, words that proclaim a soft answer, even in the midst of conflict. Maybe you're in the midst of a conflict right now that started with harsh words and your need to offer a soft answer. Not with the expectation that everything, therefore, will go well with you, but because you, therefore, are a representative of Jesus Christ. And even when things don't go well with you, we still pursue Christ and offer soft answers. Maybe that's you here today. Maybe you're just struggling in some way. I'd love the opportunity to pray with you, pray for you, hold you accountable, as well as you hold me accountable. Um, as we talk about this and consider this together, that we would be truly a church, a family of God who is for one another in our pursuit of holiness, who does not use confession of sin as an opportunity to tear each other down, but to lift each other up, to focus our gaze on Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and the Lord has spoken to you in such a way as to convict you of sin, please don't miss that opportunity to come pray with your brothers and sisters. I'll be down front here. Some other of our deacons will be down front as well. We'd love that opportunity to talk with you. But I, I do want to say this. Maybe you're here this morning and you don't know really where you stand and you're, you're thinking in your mind, okay, well, 
in order to be a Christian, what I need to do is, is just have soft answers. Friends, that's actually not the gospel. This is actually something that the gospel produces, but it's not, in fact, the gospel. The gospel is this, that you, you were born in sin, rejecting a good, holy, righteous God who created you for the very purpose of bringing himself glory, which may sound selfish until you recognize that he actually is the gift of all creation, that in bringing him glory, you're fulfilling a great and true purpose and a good purpose for which you were created. Until you fulfill that purpose, you will constantly look for things in your life that will fulfill you, and and they simply won't. There's only one fulfillment, and it's found in doing what you were created to do, glorifying God. But the the problem is, you're stuck in your sin, You have chosen the path of unrighteousness willingly. And you continue to do so as you reject the worship of the true and right God. And therefore, because of this, you've earned and deserved death. A a physical death, but an eternal death. A separation from God where you are not able to spiritually on your own make your way back to Him. But the good news of the gospel is that God loved you so much that He sent His Son, Jesus. Jesus who's fully God and fully man, who never sinned, therefore didn't deserve death. See, you and your breaking of God's law have deserved a just punishment. God must judge sin. He must punish sin, and you've sinned. Jesus did not deserve God's judgment or God's punishment, but willingly went to the cross and took it on your behalf. He willingly bore the wrath of his Father, though he had not yet done anything to deserve so, so that you might be given the gift of his life. If you would but repent and turn away from your sins and towards Christ and believe on this gospel. And then, when the Lord gives you that new heart, then you are able to live in victory and pursue righteousness. And part of that pursuit of righteousness, this evidence that you have been born again, is a soft answer and a gentle tongue. So if you have not yet today, by faith, given your heart over to King Jesus then there's an opportunity for you before you leave this building to know that you have eternal life where you've earned eternal death. That you've been given the grace of knowing Christ when you, left to your own device, would only choose to know yourself and worship yourself. I want to invite you down front at the end of our service, after the conclusion of our service, to come and talk to me, one of our men as well, so we can pray for you and encourage you. I don't care how long it takes. We'd love to have you. Make sure that you know by the time you leave this place who you belong to.